Hello and welcome to episode 17 of Of Poetry Podcast with the poet Casey Judds. Casey Judds is a poet living in the Catskill Mountains in New York. Casey's poems have appeared or are forthcoming in publications including American Poetry Review, Beloit Poetry Journal, Bennington Review, Cave Wall, Cincinnati Review, Colorado Review, Crazy Horse, Denver Quarterly, Narrative, Ninth Letter, Pleiades, Provincetown Arts, River Sticks, Salamander, The Southampton Review, Tinderbox, and Waxwing. Casey has been a resident at the Vermont Studio Center, Virginia Center for the Creative Arts, Soapstone, and the U Cross Foundation, and a visiting poet at the University of Pennsylvania, LaSalle College, and the University of Northern Colorado. Casey's first book, Keeper, won the Agnes Lynch Starrett Prize from the University of Pittsburgh Press and was published by Pitt in fall 2013. Casey's second book, The Thicket, has just been published by Pittsburgh Press this month, November 2021. Hi, Casey, and welcome. Hi, Han. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited you could be here in the same month as your book coming out. Thank you. Thank you. And your birthday month. do you like to read your poem birthday thank you i will and we were just discussing it's a good time to read it my birthday is on wednesday birthday and then it seemed you hadn't forgotten if a gate is open leave it open if closed leave it closed If the one before you hangs unlatched, brightening a space for your body in its vanishing to pass through. Humming from the high up wires strung between pylons, current of electricity and insects marking the far edge of summer. Chicory flowers by the path folded over their blue and across the valley from the opposite slope, two women speaking, not their words too far to parse, but the thread of sound unspooling between trees felled to coax the grassland back, tangle of stems dappled by cloud shadow where the small animals seek safety. Like you, vanishing, brightening, passing through the gate, seeds of the lion-shaded grasses snagged invisible in your hair. Listen, listen, you are just beginning to be known. Thank you. Mm. I believe it is Michael Mativier. I might be pronouncing, mispronouncing Michael's name um, in his beautiful review of The Thicket at Ecothea Review, where he talks about your use of speakers that are, are kind of unanchored in some way from a human speaker or like he, he talks about your poem, the silo where not, I shouldn't have said the speaker. It's more like the who or what is being addressed that um, I think you do some really interesting things um, with that. And it reminds me of, of birthday as well. The listen, listen, you are just beginning to be known that it's not just, I just don't think that you are privileging um, a human listener above all, above, you know, other nature, above the rest of the world. And I think that's such a special and unique. um, And, and frankly, I think, you know, I'm kind of wrestling with the idea lately of um, Anthropocene and the way poets want to write, you know, understandably uh, in the knowledge of the Anthropocene and post-Anthropocene and the human centering. And yet sometimes I feel like all the poems are human centering. Mm. And it's really like that we have to shift that whole speaker perspective. Um, And I'm just as guilty of doing this, I think, as as any other poet, because you do have your own voice and you do have a way you want to speak. but I think that's a really beautiful aspect of your poetry that you you have you do shift that you know the speaker and the addressee and the listener. Mm. 
Oh, Han, that's so lovely. And that means so much to me. Thank you. I mean, first of all, that's a lovely comment, compliment. Um, and it's very meaningful to me. Um, yeah, and that's a beautiful, beautiful review. Also super meaningful to me. Um, and I, I hope so. I really hope so. I think that is an aspiration that I have for the poems that um, there certainly are people in them um, and there's me in them or some aspect of me in them. Um, but I don't, I don't want the the people who are in them to be paramount, you know? Um, I mean, we are important and we're not the most important um, or not more important than anything else. Um, and it's, yeah, it's not a way that I wanna, I'm trying not to live that way also, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm reading Maxine Skates's book right now, her new book, which is called My Wilderness, which is so um, amazing. And one of the things that I am loving about it is that there's so many trees in it and the trees are just as big and real and complicated and beautiful and important as the people, mm. you know? They're just like right next to each other. So yeah, thank you. That means a lot to me. That's so, I. I, I need to read the book, The Mushroom at the End of the World. That's all I need to read that too. Yeah, I need to read that too. I feel like I'm reading references to that book all over the place mm -hmm. and I definitely need to read it. And I think about the overstory too. Yeah, which I also haven't read. Have you read that? I have. And it's, and it's still, you know, it, it is really interesting to think about like the, the trees as being the, the real the story of that narrative, right? And the people are just kind of the the players. It's that very like Shakespearean sense of the people coming onto the stage and then walking off the stage, you know, that just passing through um, yes. feeling. Yeah. Wow. Um, did you, I was curious um, if you had something you wanted to say about, I've been, I've been speaking to so many people with first books coming out mm -hmm. and this is your second. Um, and I was wondering if you wanted to say what it has been like for you between your first and then your second. Yeah. Oh, that's such a good question. They've been very, very, very different. Um, and the one thing that's been similar is that I've been super lucky to work with the same publisher um, mm -hmm. and they're, and they're wonderful. Um, so lots of the same people from the first book um, whom I really trust and, and value um, and they do such beautiful work. Um, but otherwise everything else feels very, very different. The first, when the first book came out, it was, I think it was nine years ago. And um, I just didn't know anything. Um, I didn't know yeah, I didn't know anything. I didn't know what to expect. I guess we never know what to expect, but I really didn't know what to expect. I didn't know anything that I could be doing to kind of support the book in its life in the world. Um, so I basically didn't do anything, um, you know, and that's like, that's, that's a place to be. I mean, it was, it was, it was fine. Um, but I was just very, I was very ignorant and not so, not that I know so much now, but I know a little bit more and I promised myself it's a very uncomfortable area um, as I think it probably is for a lot of people. I've heard a lot of poets speak about this and poets who are friends speak about this. Um, doing self-promotion, um, mm. supporting the book and its life. It's like, it's, it's public life to the extent that it has a public life. Um, it's uncomfortable. Um, and it also this time around felt really important to me to do um, or to do my best with. Mm. So I promised mm -hmm. myself, okay, I'm just gonna do my best with this for six months. And then, um, and then, you know, I can, I can be done and I can let that go. Um, mm -hmm. And it is really uncomfortable. Sometimes it's really lovely. Sometimes it's really uncomfortable. Um, I think I come from a family culture of, um, that's also quite gendered of like, don't call attention to yourself. Casey, stop talking about yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is very much pushing against that. Um, yeah, and it's not, it isn't always pleasant, um, but it's good. So I don't know if that answers the question. Did it answer the question? Oh, this is, it feels yes. like, like the biggest way in which the two books are different. 
And I think I also thought about this one more. It wasn't, I mean, so many books that I really love and admire are very like consciously books. Like there, I have, Mm -hmm. I have issues with this term, but there are projects. They're like very consciously conceived of like it as a whole, as a whole book. Um, My first book was definitely not that. And I don't think this one was either, but I felt more conscious when I was writing the poems of sometimes when one poem would speak to another or, um, you know, I wrote this poem about this, but I think maybe I'm not done yet. Thinking more consciously about, oh, maybe these could be in a book together someday. Yeah. Yeah. That is everything you said, I think um, from like, not knowing, I mean, how can you possibly know what it's like to have a book before you have a book? Yeah. Um, it sounds so much, it just reminds me, it's like when you, you know, if you're a parent who's had a first child, you feel really bad for your first child because you're like, I'm sorry, <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> like, um, and I think of books in that way too. Like there's something you create um, and it's, you just can't know, like, um, and it's that beautiful, you know, Theodore Red Key, I learned by going where yeah. I have to go. Like yeah. you, you can't, you have to experience it. Um, and I also hear so, I mean, just hear, I have such a sympathy, um, with like the gendered promotion. And, um, I mean, I know a poet who's just incredible. He's every poet, every book of theirs has won a prize. Um, and you know, they said like they're, they just felt like their first several books were invisible because they weren't on social media. They weren't taught, you know, they weren't reaching out. And to see this poet, you know, um, now really be like, I, and again, they're like, I do not like, I like, it almost makes them ill to like be on social media and to do that stuff. And I, I really, um, I am sympathetic. I mean, I personally love social media because I'm like a book butterfly and I really want to be in the thicket. Like, and I said thicket, I meant to say thick, but here I am thinking about the thicket. Um, the thicket's fine too, but um, <laughs> I love that you said thicket. Yes. Um, but I do, you know, I understand like when there are certain things that make me feel gross that I wouldn't do um, in terms of promotion. And so like figuring out what you're comfortable with, you know, how you do want your book to be read, um, you know, being a, being a good steward of your own work, like being a good champion of your own work. And I had a friend, Jessica, I think it was Jessica Stark said to me, was it Jessica Stark? We have a lot of these conversations about, you know, gender publication and um, Mm -hmm. that if a man doesn't speak about his work, he can appear very humble. Mm. And if a woman or a femme doesn't, they disappear. Yeah. And I mean, I feel, I feel okay making a really broad generalization, generalized statement like that, because I wrote my dissertation on women poets in the 17th century. And you see what happens when, um, you know, how they're promoted and how they're shared and whether their work was pirated by men to be published. And then it had a life beyond, you know, uh, the women's circles and how women supported each other and invited each other over and wrote with each other. And so, um, you know, the life of a book and the life of a poet are so intertwined um, and resources are, you know, very privileged and how they have access to those resources. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's, it's absolutely something I think a lot about. And yeah. um, you, you know, you figuring out even lately, I think about like, well, do I need an agent? Am I failing my work by not, you know, am I not supporting my own work enough by not, because I'm like, ew, I, I don't want to do that. <laughs> um, and uh, no, I think agents are wonderful. Like, I think they're great. Like, and I'm really happy for friends who have them but I personally don't, but then I'm like, am I, you know, am I hurting my work? And so trying to just balance how you feel about things and um, mm. what you feel comfortable stepping into. And I think it's really good to make yourself a little uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, but also if you need to, to pull back and mm-hmm. to say like, I'm doing this, 
I mean, I think of that quote, I live quietly in order to be happy. Um, and I'm mm. definitely going to forget whoever said that, but, um, Oh, I've never heard that. And that's wonderful. Oh, I think it was a writer and mm. I think it was a, a woman writer. So I'm going to have to look that up. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I feel that a lot. Oh. <laughs> yes. yes. Oh, Han. Okay. So many things that you just said, um, that I want to respond to. Wow. Well, I'm, first of all, I'm really grateful to you for saying what you did about the genderedness of publication and publicity. Um, and yes, yeah, that feels so true to me. Um, yeah. And I love that you, that you were framing part of what you just said around what is best for the work. Mm. Um, that feels so important to me too. I mean, I often think about the books that have been, and there are a lot of books um, and poems that are so sustaining to me that really have changed my life and made my life what it is, um, sometimes in really obvious ways and sometimes in very, very subtle ways that are very long-term and just unfold over time. Um, Laura Fargus's book, An Animal of the Sixth Day, is one of my favorite, favorite books. Um, and it's been so dear to me for so many years. Um, and it was published by a relatively, like a smallish press. And I don't think that it got a lot of attention when it came out. Um, and I'm not sure how well known she is now. And I often think about how grateful I am to have that book in my life and to know that book. And also how lucky it was for me to find that book. I'm not even sure how I actually did. Um, but when like, just thinking as you were saying about how, like, how do we support the book and how do we support the poems and how do we help the book and the poems maybe find the reader's that they need to find, this is part of it too. And that feels like, it just feels like such an important part of the conversation. Um, and it's it, it also is a really, I think it's a true way of framing it. And it also feels like a relief to frame it that way um, because yeah, it, it all of these questions, not that it's bad to be uncomfortable, it's actually good and important and necessary to be uncomfortable. And also it's really lovely to shift the focus sometimes too onto the actual poems and the actual work and away from like, how does this feel for me to be doing this thing on Twitter, like retweeting this thing or, um, you know, sharing this review or whatever. Sometimes it feels good and sometimes it doesn't. And it's lovely to be able to think, oh, but these are, you know, there was a reason that um, we wanted this work to be in the world, you know, we were, there was, there was some desire, which I think is a true desire for someone to find it and to read it and to, to make space in their life for that poem or that book. Um, and it's, it's nice to, to return to that, um, to that sense of things and to the sense of like the book as its own, as its own entity or its own animal. Yeah, I agree. And, oh, two things. One earlier when you were talking about how you were raised um, in, in terms of like gendered praise and not speaking about yourself. And um, my mother would always say, let other men praise you and not your own mouth. Um, and, and also like the don't be vain, right? Um, but it's so interesting because, I mean, that quote makes me laugh now, A, because it's gendered. Mm -hmm. um, I don't feel like that's a universal men. Um, <laughs> and also yeah. like, I mean, I think that's some really beautiful work we can do for each other. And I yeah. see that on social media so often. It's like, you know, congratulating people in their books, praising people when you love their, their work or their poem, um, you know, lifting each other up. I see that work all the time. And I know there's, there's a lot of absolutely just and true criticisms of social media. Um, and I, absolutely like honor people who don't, who choose to not participate. Um, yep. but there is a lot of, of good work that's done there too. Um, and it also, frankly, I'm, I'm like, as an editor and a writer, um, <laughs> I'm very excited for all the different ways 
a writer can promote their work without a whole lot of, um, you know, you don't have to have a lot of money or resources to, you know, even if you're not doing Twitter account, which I think is good for poets, you can have a free WordPress website for yourself. You can have a blog there where you share your work. You don't have to, you know, be in the publishing and submitting slog, which um, lately I have actually been backing off from. um, And I'm very inspired by um, Alina Stefanescu, how Alina will share her work on her website. Um, and I find that like so generous and like you're creating a space, you're making a kind of a quiet space where people can go and find your work, but you know, I think you're honoring the creating of it, um, in a special way. And like, I've, I've posted a few essays to my, to my blog, because frankly, the idea of like just the submitting and submitting and I was tired and I just wanted it to be there if someone could find it, Mm -hmm. but like, so you can like really mediate how, um, how you use these kind of new forms of media. But like, I think about like, oh, what if 17th century women poets had had blogs that would have been (laughs) like, that would have been so cool. So there are some things you can do, or if you like Instagram and, you know, whatever it is, um, whatever media you like, whether it's spoken and audio or visual or verbal and written, I, I think you can find some way to, you know, and this, this is obviously, um, just responding to you in terms of, um, bringing the thicket to readers, but also just thinking more generally too, about, um, how writers can promote their work with very little effort. And, um, I think it's so important for an editor to be able to find an author website. I do think so. I, I'm always kind of saying that on Twitter ever so often, like, please make that website so we can find you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I so appreciate that. I have seen your tweets that say that. Yeah. Oh my gosh, Hannah, again, so many things. Um, Oh yeah. I feel like my heart is very full. Um, Well, first of all, I know I've said this to you before, but I really want to read your dissertation. Um, Yeah. I'm shaking my head. No, don't do that. (laughs) We can have a conversation and talk about it. I, I yeah, you just said so many things that um, were so moving to me and feel so true. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, you, I, I, all of those things that you said about social media and Twitter in particular, I feel very, very much the same. Um, I feel like you are such a model for me and I think for, for other people too. I know for other people of, of, um, that that sort of generosity that you were talking about that celebrating of other people's work and that's so meaningful um you're a model for me in that way um and yeah i see that i see that work all the time too um and it is very mixed twitter's super mixed um we could have like a whole conversation about this um but it is something that i it's an aspect of twitter that i really love um and that I have learned so much from and that's given me so much um it's given me so much in terms of uh many things but I'm thinking particularly now of poems of Mm. work I wouldn't know about otherwise you know that wouldn't have come into my life otherwise that um has been so incredibly meaningful and rich to me Mm. um and you're speaking about Twitter and speaking about um, the poets that you wrote about in your dissertation was also sort of making me think about, I am not gonna remember who said this and I apologize for not being able to, um, but I read, um, was a poet and was in an interview, um, was a female poet and she was talking about um, uh, writing and working with other people. And she said at some point, like, I feel like we're just all writing one big collaborative poem. Um, and I read this years ago and it has always stayed with me um, because there's a sense in which I really feel like that is true. Um, and on the one hand, it would be silly and it would also be not correct to say like, you didn't write what pecan light and I didn't write the thicket, you know, that's just not true. And then on the other hand, I think about all of the, all of the, poets, all of the poems, all of the things that I've read, all of the beings in the world Mm -hmm. that I've 
come into contact with that are so much part of the poems um, that the poems literally would not exist without those other poems and those other people mm -hmm. and other non-human animals. Um, and sometimes those Sometimes those connections are like right on the surface and I can actually name them, but so much more often they're, they're so deep um, and they're so subtle and wordless that I actually can't. Um, so something about what you just said made me, made me think about that. And then in a way like, yes, we're promoting our own work and of course we're celebrating other people's work, um, but we're also, we're also lifting up all of the poems and all of the beings that mm. sort of poured themselves into our, our work, our poems. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a way in which our books are ours and there's a way in which they're not ours mm. or not ours exclusively. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that made yes. any sense. Yes, no, so. thank you. That's beautiful. Um, absolutely. I mean, I, I think there is this, idea that your book is something you do on your own and in the process of writing it and publishing it and then you know promoting it you see that no it's it's much bigger than you and so many people are involved in it yeah. um that myth of like individualism and genius I think are oh. really just harmful like they're just harmful it's not how we actually work it's not how we live it's um yeah, I think I just, my favorite word right now is entanglement, um, which I absolutely, you know, I'm stealing from Ross Gay talking about it in relation to the mushroom at the end of the world. Um, <laughs> and, you know, community is a, it, it, it's part of community and community sounds like it can be just a, a good, like the term and the concept, but entanglement implies that it's complicated and that yeah. it's, it's not yeah. all desirable. Right. But it is yeah. all connected. Yes. Um, and so like, yes, to that in terms of when, you know, maybe it's not literary community, maybe it's just, it's literary entanglement. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I love what you said about, you know, all the ways like the poems honor, all the kind of forms of life that, that touch them. Um, and so I, I know I've, I've brought this up with you earlier and you've been so kind about just responding to, to, uh, what I've been saying. And I haven't even been asking you, uh, well-formed <laughs> questions. So thank you. Um, but this actually is a question. <laughs> um, I thinking about Ginny George's the dream of reason. Um, and, the work that Ginny George does with, um, I mean, she does all that incredible work with pigs and pig yeah. farming. And yeah. there's yeah. Um, such a, a rural and agricultural presence in her work. And for me, that's very rare to see that, um, frankly, done well, yep. done in a yep. not self-conscious way but in a way that's about commitment and relationship. Um, and yeah, it's, it would, that was such an important book for me. Um, and I see such so many connections between Jenny George's work and your own. And I think it's, a, it exists at many levels, like that there's a, a tone and a grammar and also really, and truly, I think kind of a, philosophical orientation. And, um, when I read your work, your work are both so stilling, like mm -hmm. your work feels distilled, but also, um, it calms me down it, the pacing and the expression. And I think so much, it has to do with the silences around your work, um, that you really honor. Um, and, you know, with George's work too, and yours, that there's, um, an engagement with trauma mm -hmm. and personal history that doesn't feel like it has to name it like everything explicitly because it's doing that work implicitly. And because it's doing that work by honoring the absences and the spaces around it, which is, I think one of the most 
brilliant works of poetry. That's like how poetry works best. Um, and also that you both, I mean, I know you're both practitioners of um, Zen Buddhism, am I right? Um, and that, I mean, I just, again, that philosophical orientation um, and the attention to like the rural and the natural world. Um, so, I mean, I also, I also think of Jane Kenyon with your work, like it's that attention to the ordinariness of life that is so honoring and it's not something you see all the time in poetry at all. So, um, yeah, I would, I would love to talk with you more about, about this and, and these connections. Oh, oh my goodness. That was so, that was so lovely. Thank you. I, my heart feels very full. Um, I mean, first of all, that's such a, um, beautiful and meaningful compliment. Jenny George is a poet I admire so much and I love that book. Um, and I've loved Jane Kenyon's work. She was one of the first poets when I started to read contemporary poetry, she was one of the first poets that I read. Um, so I feel like I've had such, such a long relationship with her work and it really, her work really supports long relationship with it. I feel mm. like I read, um, I was recently rereading her after not having read her for a long time. Mm. And I just, I don't even know that I know how to articulate this, except that I, I feel like I, I was, the poems felt so different and I felt like I was reading them so differently from the way I read them, like maybe 10 years ago. I don't know if mm. I read her like in a concentrated way since then. Um, but so anyway, thank you so much. That is very meaningful to me. Um, and I know we were, I was saying this to you before. Um, I love this question um, about silence and trauma um, and the unsaid. And I'm gonna try to, um, maybe not very articulately, but I'm gonna try to talk my way into it. I love that you asked it. And I know I said to you before, I don't think I've ever talked to anybody about this part of, my work. Um, in fact, I'm sure I haven't. So I'm going to try to talk my way into it. Um, one thing that occurred to me is um, the fact that, and I feel like I, it was one, it was a thing when I was making the poems that I actually did think about consciously. Lots of stuff feels like it happens so unconsciously, but this like really occurred to me consciously that although I love other people's stories, and I'm really interested in other people's stories and other narratives, um, my own life doesn't make sense to me as a story, or at least like mm -hmm. not as a story the way I was taught about what stories are when I was a student. And I feel like my, my understanding of it is, is shifting as I get older or, um, and as I'm sort of feeling my way into that, but I have never really even the most dramatic things that have happened to me, like, which aren't terribly dramatic, um, but even those, um, telling them as a story, even to myself, has never felt true. Um, they feel boring. Um, I don't know how to engage with the things in my life in, in story form. Um, it just doesn't feel particularly true to me. Um, so... Um, and I think that that is a really, I think what you were saying before about poetry and silence and space and gaps, um, it's something that's, it's, that feels very true to me about the genre, um, which is so vast and wide and also just there's so much room in it for silence and for space. And it's, I think it's one of the things that first attracted me to poems. Um, and it's one of the things that I still value so much. So the telling of something, I guess, whether it's traumatic or not, just somehow makes more emotional sense or heart sense to me um, when it's when it's not a narrative or at least if it's something that's related to my life when it's not a narrative um, and the yeah and the the leaving of space I'm so glad that you find that in the poems because that is something that is really important to me and that I do really value um, yeah 
I don't know if that answered the question. I know I also feel like, oh, there was something else I was gonna say and now I can't remember what it was. Maybe it will come back to me. Um, yeah, so when I try to, the things, the things that are in the book that are, that are traumatic or that have that history, um, I've thought about them to myself in terms of story and I've occasionally talked to other people about them in a sort of a story form um, or like a narrative, like this happened, then this happened, then this happened, and this was how I felt or whatever. Um, and they just don't, they, they don't feel real. They don't feel mm -hmm. like I'm actually telling the truth about the thing, whatever it was. Um, and I, and, and poems to me feel like they're, they're able to get at that better. Mm. Yes. And I mean, you do really incredible work with um, folk and fairy tales in the thicket. And I think that that's another way. Um, I mean, it's when you think about archetypes in folk and fairy tales, which for me, I mean, they are what I read first, yeah. first when I discovered them in the library as a girl and mm -hmm. I really, okay. I really wanted romance and I had no idea where to look for that. And so I ended up reading folk and fairy tales, which are not very romantic. No. Um, but I was like, Hey, there are, there are princesses here. And, <laughs> and there's also there's so much, I mean, I, I was really into Andrew Lang's colored fairy tale books. Like, oh yes. The, the blue fairy. Yes. And the, I don't remember what the other colors are. The blue fairy is the one that I own. Yes. The blue fairy book. Yes. yes. I have all of them. And oh, oh, I mean like this That's whole cool. rainbow collection and, um, oh, lovely. it, you know, just the, the violence and the simplicity with which a folktale will tell you something very, very violent. Yep. Um, it's, it was just like very surprising. It, and, um, uh, but also I wasn't at all shocked by it because I think when you're young, if you're young and you're, you're privileged in that nothing bad has happened to you yet. Um, <laughs> those things are not the, you know, they're, they're forms. They're not forms you really engage with and, um, and you can just read them. Um, so I, I do, I think the presence of, of folk and fairy tales and how you access them and how you use them in the thicket is incredible. Um, the Hedge, would you like to read your poem, The Hedge? Oh, sure. Thank oh, you. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I love talking about this with you. I'll take my, I just have to find it. It has a, an epigraph from uh, Maria Tatar's uh, translation of Briar Rose. And this is it. When the prince approached the briar hedge, he found nothing but big, beautiful flowers. They opened to make a path for him and to let him pass unharmed. Then they closed behind him to form a hedge. The hedge. In the middle of the story, another story of how the suture of briars became blossom, became wound, the open place where they were not. As you were first a body, then a body, like the unbroken thicket of radiant flowers, as if nothing had been injured or changed. Thank you. That's a gorgeous epigraph and I mean, it's, it's inspired me to, I know I want to go back and read more. I mean, because I think amazing a, picture like <laughs> opened up and then it closed right behind him. Like nothing amazing. happened. Yeah. Amazing. And he found nothing but big, beautiful flowers. Um, and I mean, if you're familiar with, you know, the sleeping beauty trope and um, it's, really incredible language just because I think that you know also some of the work of poetry is that the metaphor is there like the metaphor lives there you don't really I mean so you can write a poem about a noiseless patient spider mm. and then it's just the metaphor is like it's there and um and I've actually had students react really impatiently to this that that they're like well how come like 
why, why, if I'm writing about a dog, why is it something else too? And like, they're annoyed that, oh. um, <laughs> I think that's what happens to language and you really pay attention to it, that mm-hmm. it opens like this hedge, right. It opens up, um, and lets you pass through it. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Um, and you also have, Oh, and I just, I mean, the opening stanza here in, in your poem, The Hedge, in the middle of a story, another story. Um, in that space that you create in your poetry with, with folk and fairy tale, how, um, and it's not like this collection sets out to be a, like, I mean, there's Anne Sexton's transformations, right? Or I think of these texts where it's like, very much like you said, a project book where, oh, this is every, every poem is going to engage a folk or fairy tale. That's not what you're doing. I think you, you kind of let it slip in when it needs to, to be there. Um, you kind of like hold the door open for that. Um, and now I'm going to go to your poem, the girl with no hands, which when I got to reading in your book gave me such a start because I have a poem, the girl with one hand. Mm. Um, so I would love to read you my poem and I would love to hear you read the girl with no hands. Oh, yes, please. Do you want to go first? Oh no, you go first. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Please. Of course. Thank you for asking about this. The girl with no hands. The girl with no hands eats the pear with only her mouth steps close to the brimming tree and takes the fruit with lips and teeth, her maimed arms tied behind her back. Later in the story, she will marry, later still be parted from her love. But now she steps toward the tree as if to enter it, as if the tree were gate or door or her own unharmed body somehow kept whole. I know there is a story inside this story, one I cannot read. A story inside the tree, the girl presses her entire handless body into, as if she might become that leafy other. First time you stepped your body into mine, crickets, streetlights, the nocturnal city breathing. Before then, before I knew you, I touched you with the girl's lost hands, the gone hands hidden inside my own. Before the pear, the tree, the girl walked and walked. She slept in a thicket from which she crept at dawn. For so long, the story was about hunger, as maybe most stories are. I press the side of my face against the space between your shoulder blades. Did I say at the end, the girl's hands grow back? Did I tell you it is summer? And the girl is ravenous, and the tree is green as never or always. Thank you. Wow. That's an incredible poem. Thank you. And again, this the story inside the story, the the what access to like the archetype does for the speaker in this poem. Um and the fact that, I mean, when, you know, I, I shared this poem or part of it on Twitter and the poet, um, Monica Cassell responded that she had a poem about, and now I'm like, oh my goodness, we need an anthology. <laughs> yes, we do, we do. And just, this is another lovely Twitter thing, Twitter aside, uh, which was that then I saw that, that exchange. And then um, I got to read Monica's poem, which is amazing about the same fairy tale. So um, was, there are good things that Twitter can do for us. Yeah, and you both have <laughs> pears in your poem. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Will you read? Will you yes. Read your- yes, I will. Okay. So my poem, okay, so your poem is in shorter couplets. Mm-hmm. My poem is in the same form. Mm-hmm. My poem is also in, in shorter couplets. And, it, you know, it's a, your poem goes across two pages, like it's longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm flipping back to your book. Yeah, 
so I, anyways, I'm interested. Our poems are in the same form too. Okay. So That's your sorry. poem is the girl with no hands. And my poem is the girl with one hand. And it's um, from the Swahili folk tale. Hmm. The girl with one hand begins with blessing, begins with mother and father, with brother. She begins with two whole hands. Take away father, leave blessing. Take away mother, leave blessing. Leave brother, cut one hand off with the same machete that cuts down her pumpkin vines. The unsung friend, a cooking pot, the girl shares with everyone, with neighbors who trade her corn, with a small snake hiding from a larger snake. What I remember about this story is the loss, the girl losing her baby, child of a king, while bathing in wild waters. The snake she helped tells her to search the root-filled water with both her hands. The cruelness of instructions is cold water against an empty wrist. The girl finds her baby in the water, lifts the baby out with both her hands. Kindness is miraculous. The girl is returned to happiness, her brother thrown out of town. He no longer belongs in the story. The fullness of its end is written without him. Mm. and just the way I mean it's it's so much violence to be carried in a story with this image um of loss and um I mean that just it that impressed me so I remember reading it as a girl and just thinking about this story for so long um and I mean what needs to be cut out of a life too. I think of that um, and women's narratives and narratives of violence and trauma. And um, yeah, so I just felt a huge affinity when I came across your poem. Yeah. Thank you for letting me read you mine in response. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that, Han. That is, that's, it's wonderful with your poem. Um, yeah, gosh, so many things. Um, what needs to be cut out of a life in order to survive. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I was struck, I was struck in your poem um, by what you said earlier to me, I think is so true, both of your poem, and I think it's also true, or at least it can be true of, of some fairy tales. It sounds like this fairy tale for sure, um, that the other beings that aren't human, mm. so, um, are equally important, are also yes. weighty, um, powerful, um, fully present. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I love, I love that you bring that up. Um, I think it's, um, when you think about, you know, I, what you were saying about feeling like your life wasn't a story and trying to figure out how, you know, how to carry your own story via narrative, like what kind of narrative you need. Um, And for some of my recent work, I really needed narratives with gaps and silences. Mm -hmm. And I I needed that, um, the absence of those narratives. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, you know, folk and fairy tales are one place a reader and a writer can go Yes. To kind of access these stories that, you know, like something I loved about, about folk and fairy tales when I was younger was that you would find the same trope in the same story across different countries and different languages. And you yes. see that and you'd be like, oh my goodness, they all have this story about seven brothers or three yes. sisters or yes. the snake that helps or the doll, you know, like it, it's incredible um, yes. that people really need stories to carry them um, and they will create them and they will create them over again if they need them right it's like a survival um like I heard the poet Tyree Day ask yesterday like we we were actually um, on a folk tale panel together and he said Mm -hmm. um what are the stories you need to survive 
what are the proverbs you need to survive and that folk of fairy tales it's also linked to survival and teaching like it teaches story but it also teaches knowledge and it teaches you um I think different kinds of knowledge that we just don't have immediate access to in a normal life without you know like folk and fairy tales give you something different I think that's I think that's so true yeah yeah that feels very um that just feels so alive to me what you just said um yeah and I love that you said what are the what are the narratives that we need um because I think we do need them and I think we're all different. We need different ones. Um, you know, we, there, there are different types of narratives that probably fit us, you know, better at certain times of our lives. And then we'll need, we'll need new ones, we'll need different ones. Yes. Um, it feels like, like the fact that we do need narratives and that we all need at least somewhat different narratives feels like mm-hmm. such a strong argument to me for we need we need all the stories we need all the writing we need Mm. um, we need people to be making poems and novels and essays and um hybrid works and things that are no genre and we need people to be pushing against those things um and we need people to be working out of tradition and Mm -hmm. we just like we really need all of it because we do need narrative and stories and they are ways to live um Mm -hmm. and necessary ways to live and I know I said story after I just said like that whole thing about how stories don't make sense to me in my own life but I'm thinking of it in a like hopefully more sort of capacious way Mm -hmm. of yeah of story can be actually many things yeah yeah and cross across languages and, and yes. cross countries and exactly yeah um, like yeah they can hold our complications and um yeah 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 they can yeah they can hold so many things i mean they can they can hold our violence um mm-hmm. it's it's I don't know. This may be sort of a weird aside. It's deer hunting season here. So I'm thinking a lot about deer hunting season because I can hear it and I see Mm. the hunters. um, And I don't know that I have anything. I mean, I have, I have have very, very mixed feelings about it. Um, Mm. um, But I I guess I'm just like feeling a lot of the mixed feelings and the contradiction and the, Mm the violence um, of it, which is so present. Um, and yet at the same time, you know, I'm not a strict vegetarian and I do eat meat. And um, these are people who know, like the people who are hunting the deer um, know, you know, a part, a part of that cycle that I don't know because I have not ever killed an animal. Hmm. So yeah, I don't, this just came into my head like I said, because it's, because it's very present all around. Yeah. 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 And it just, I'd never thought about fairy tales this way before, but they, they are, they feel like a container for so many things. Um, And one of those things is violence. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. that. um, Yeah. Both of those stories, the girl with one hand and the girl with no hands are so, yeah, they're so fierce. They're so violent. Yeah. And I mean, we were talking about, we were talking about our house plants a little bit before yes. <laughs> we started our conversation <laughs> yeah. and I was talking, we were talking about gardening. And I mean, um, I mean, even apart from animal life, there's so much life and death in a garden and with plants. And, um, when you're pulling things out or when a season is done or, or what you do to like thin seeds, if you've planted a whole, you know, bunch when you, you thin them so they can grow. Um, and I mean, it's, it's interesting to me to bring that back to folk and fairy tale, because there seems to be so much a plucking out, like when something isn't working in a life, because like the girl with one hand, her hand, isn't the problem. Like, her brother is the problem. Like it's yeah. not, you know, it's, it's fine that she has one hand. Um, like she's, she's herself, like that. It's not about like a maimed person that it's about, um, the, the person who's the abuser and the harm, like mm-hmm. that once her parents aren't there, the brother 
preys on the vulnerable. Um, and I mean, you know, take, I think he even takes away the cooking pot that she's using to like, she's loaning to neighbors and trade for things. So it takes away her very like way of like living and, and surviving. Yeah. And I mean, folk and fairy tales do this most incredible work with um, families. And I think that the way they render them somehow like simple, like they render violence somehow simple too, and just so pared down. Um, And they're like the opposite of a novel because you're not getting these flushed out, deep, rich, portrayals mm-hmm. of humanity where you're like wow no one's truly good or evil no and like folk oh. fairy, like there are evil people there <laughs> it's reminding me of when when I studied um so I used to teach kindergarten um and when I was studying to become an elementary teacher uh, I took a class on children's literature and I remember learning in that class that um fairy tales that that's that's a reason that fairy tales are appealing to children because mm. it's children are developmentally in a place where things are quite binary. Um, mm. Like people are good or bad, and yeah. actions are good or bad. Mm-hmm. And fairy in fairy tales, you're right; they're not like incredibly nuanced characters. There's um, in the girl with no hands. There's the girl who's purely good. Um, and then there's her father who's pretty evil and there isn't there isn't a complicated in between place Um, and kids apparently yeah that's just a very normal developmental Mm -hmm. stage that children really like okay these are the bad people and these are the good people and I can understand that Mm. yeah yeah and maybe that's why like in the thicket when you bring in a, a folk tale or fairy tale it's almost like they're such pressurized objects that those tales themselves, um, like they can bear a lot of weight. Yeah. Um, pressurized objects is a great phrase. Yes. I think that's a really accurate about fairy tales. And it just, it occurred to me before, and this is conversation is so helpful, Han. I don't think I had ever thought this consciously before, even though, it's in both of those poems, the idea of a story inside a story. Mm. I think what really, well, two things. I think what's something that I'm really drawn to in the fairy tales is maybe not so much the main action, although I'm fascinated by the main action. It doesn't always tend to be what I end up writing about. Um, I'm interested in maybe like a side image. I think the it's it, in the in the girl with no hands, there is an image of her going into the orchard. And for some reason, I can't even remember why her hands have been cut off. And she also has her arms tied behind her back. So mm. she goes and she is hungry and there's a pear tree full of pears, but she can't touch them except with her mouth. And it just was such an incredible mm. image to me that she just, she only has her mouth to touch them with. Mm. So that's what she does. And she's able to eat them. Um, but it's these, it's like, they are such, the fairy tales are such pressurized objects. And I feel like even these, even these very relatively small or sort of side or subtle images are full of, they're so powerful and they're, they're full of so much depth they are pressurized, I think. Yeah. It's like, it's like they're, I mean, every action is, is like the working the way an image works in a poem, right? That there's, I I mean, I think I always want to play around with the term deep image, even though I'm not using it the correct way, like the critical way in terms of like what the deep image poetics, like that school was, but um, the way any image is a deep image, I think. Yeah. Um, Yeah especially in poetry and in how you can um, go into it. Yeah. It's Um, like you said before, like the hedge opening up and the hedge is language. Yeah. 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 I've been thinking a lot too about um, the secret garden and the story. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's such a, a girlhood um, kind of narrative too, that there's this looking for the locked door and to pass through it and to find this garden. Um, and I mean, it, it, because it's a walled in enclosed garden, um, that that's something I'm thinking about a lot lately. And that appears 
so often. I mean, the hedge around the wall, the wall that, you know, the, all the time in, in Fulcrum Fairy Tale. Um, but thank you for thank you for indulging my uh, wanting to talk about the folk aspect um, because I think it's oh, so incredible in the thicket. Thank you, thank you, Casey. Is there a poem you'd like to close us out with? Sure. So I'm going to read this one called Kittatinny, which is a mountain in the Delaware Water Gap um, near uh, the Pennsylvania New York border. Kittatinny. Why do I keep coming back to the places in the field the deer have hollowed with their sleep? Now I know there's a name for the shape any animal makes against the earth with its lying, its rest. Almost asleep, I press my body against nylon stretched over grass and mud and leaves and leave my trace beneath the tense, fragile house, its husk of gauze and wind. Higher up the mountain, the still bare trees hold their arms apart to let themselves be seen. Down here where it's warmer, new leaves flare, sharply pointed as stars a child might draw. As a child, I loved this mountain's name, glimpsed from time to time on maps like a flowering branch, a brightness my body wanted to move toward. Syllables fitting the shape of a longing I had no other words for. Like flattened grasses in the field, fitting themselves to the limbs of deer, this ground fits me to itself tracing my shape against the shapes of the other breathing creatures who scuffed and shivered here. Dirt of the page that tells this mountain's name, skin of this evening, this river dulling its silver, giving away pieces of its crimped surface from every space between the trees. Thank you. Thank you so much, Han. It's been such a pleasure, Casey. Oh, it's been a total pleasure for me and an honor. Thank you. Thank you. I hope our listeners will check the listening notes for this episode and find a link to purchase Casey Judd's The Thicket, as well as a link to Casey's website and any other texts we talked about today. And if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and give Of Poetry a five-star rating. Thank you.